Greetings. I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. Each episode, we interview a city or county leader who is in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government. For this episode, I want to take you uh, to the year 2018 to the state of California. On Thursday, November 8th, on a road known as Camp Creek Road, a faulty electric, electric transmission line began a fire. That fire is now known as Camp Fire. Camp Fire is known as the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history. And if you ever read the news, you know that's saying a lot. It was the single most expensive natural disaster in the world in 2018, killing 85 people and over, and this is, I got two astonishing numbers for you, 18,000 structures were destroyed. And at one point, the fire was so large and was moving so fast, this will put it in perspective for you, 80 football fields a minute it was burning at. That's really incredible. Four towns were essentially destroyed including the town of Paradise, ironically named. I would argue that maybe the toughest job in government could have been either to be the town manager of one of those towns or to be the director of emergency operations. Now imagine for a second, you would combine both of those positions, the town manager of the city of Paradise and the director of emergency operations, and you have one person. That was one job, a woman named Lauren Gill, was served in both of those capacities. And we are very, very lucky to have with us today, Lauren Gill. Lauren, sincerely welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and, and share my story. It's it's quite an incredible story. Um, real fast, let's open with that day. What, what was, <laughs> you get a call, there's a wildfire. What immediately went through your mind? Well, I, I didn't get a call first that there was a wildfire. I, I woke up and I looked outside, which I do every morning, I look out the window, and I saw that um, the air, the, the sky looked different than it normally does. So, you know, in my mind, it, it looked like fire or smoke, I should say. So I went outside, I saw a big plume of smoke, and I thought, well, I better get into town, um, into town hall really quick and get some information out to uh, people about the smoke because people worry when they see smoke. Um, and so, you know, my first thought was to get, um, first of all, get information about what was going on, call my fire chief. Secondly, uh, put out the word to people on, um, you know, social media. I know the news stations pick up social media and um, also to contact the council and let them know what's going on. So I just go, you know, into that mode like we do. It's, it's, you know, we've drilled for it. We do it all the time. That's what a city manager does: get information and 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 um, also get information out to people. You're the kind of the funnel of the information. Learn what's going on and get that out to the key people. Sure. And then what what happened next? Well, my uh, fire chief um, at the time mentioned that it was a fire in uh, that started in in Polga, burning over in the area of um, you know Polga, 
and that it really was no threat to the town of Paradise. I um, started with that knowledge, and um, it actually very quickly blew up from there. And the rest of the story was, um, you know, on the news playing out and just responding. At one point, I sent out my my fire chief, um, um, an EOC consultant that I had working with me, um, sending people out into the fire, basically, to get information and, um, you know, never hearing back from these people. It was it was pretty scary. Things were... It, not hearing back because they were injured or killed or not hearing back because they were, you know, taken up, taken up by the fighting the fire immediately. Exactly. Uh, we lost communication. Cell towers were, um, were burning. Uh, mainly these people were out saving lives. How do you manage something that is moving at 80 football fields a minute? <laughs> well, you, you don't. I mean, people were literally running for their lives. And because I knew that every first responder that we had on hand and that we could get into the town was out there saving lives, I didn't, um, you know, expect information to be getting back to me first. Um, and I think every city manager knows this. The first order is to save lives. And so that's what they were doing. And basically, I was in the EOC without uh, any information, and I wasn't going to go out and get information on my own because then I would become part of the problem, right? They would have to rescue right. me. What an interesting dilemma. I just stayed where I was. Um, I had a retired fire chief who um, actually lived in town and was um, also lived in my neighborhood. He was in the EOC with me. I had to uh, release all of my EOC employees down to uh, the city of Chico that, so they can set up an EOC down there. And so it was just myself and the fire chief at that point in the building. Um, no information, no communication um, coming in. It was it was pretty uh, bleak at that point. And at, at, at one point, he said, when the, the building started to catch on fire, he said, well, if we're going to leave, we should go now. And I said, well, you know, what are our options? Because I did want to be the last person to leave um, the town. That's an interesting dilemma, because what you're taught in the laboratory or the classroom or the Zoom call now and crisis communications, the first thing you're taught is gather information. And it's ironic that the very first thing you end up with is there's no way to get information because the people that were deployed to do that went to a black hole of service, so so to speak, and were having to do first order things like save lives, get people out, direct traffic on the ground. And you're, you're, it's like you put the blindfolds on. Right. And you just, re you just respond and you, you go into your, your training and, um, whatever else there is to go with. And, and of course, you know, no one's had experience with a disaster of this type and this fast moving, not even Cal Fire. But I have to say, you know, first responders, the uh, Paradise Police, uh, Cal Fire, the, the Butte County Sheriff, and all the responders that came in to help, they, they knew what to do. They were the heroes. So was there any attempt to manage the flames and the smoke, or is it just a matter of moving people out? There was no firefighting going on at that time at, at all. First of all, we couldn't get any um, air support. 
Uh, most wildfires, you know, have some very good air support and it knocks down the fire so firefighters can go and, and mop up. There was no air support on this fire because of the wind and because the smoke was was covering the fire. So there was no air support whatsoever and there was no ground support. It was all uh, saving lives. It was just getting people the hell out of the way. People out of the, the way of the fire. So I want to jump ahead, then I'm going to jump back because I need to know how are things going today? What, how is the town recovering? It's been, what, almost three years. How, how are things in paradise today? Oh, the recovery is going great. And it's something that we're very proud of. We have over 642 homes rebuilt, uh, 1,500 plus building permits received. And that's, um, you know, we used to get 10 building permits a year in Paradise. So we have over 1,500 permits received with, um, like I said, 642 homes already rebuilt and people living in them. We have um, over 190 businesses reopened in town. Um, we're working every single one of our projects in our disaster recovery plan. So it's like a giant construction site here in Paradise. There's so much activity. It's very exciting. Every road you go down, there is uh, road work being done. We're currently in the process of having hundreds of thousands of hazardous trees removed. Um, PG&E, our, utility, um, our, our utility provider, is undergrounding all the utilities. A sewer system is being planned for um, our downtown and commercial areas. Schools are being rebuilt and repaired, and they will be open next fall. So we're going gangbusters here, and it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, it, brings up, it brings up something other interesting. You know, when we think of a disaster, we think of the preparation, which we're going to get to. We think of the after, immediate aftermath. But for a smallish town that you said handles, would you say, 15 permits a week? We used to do 10 building permits for new homes. 10 new homes starts a year. A year. A year. And now, yeah. <laughs> so this, the, the weight on the staff and, the, and you know, we, we talk on this podcast in particular about the wheels of government have to roll and they have to roll with the local government all the time. The enormity of making sure things are permitted so that for those who know, who listen, you know, to make sure the electrical contractor did the right thing, certificates of occupancy are issued correctly, that homes aren't built substandard, especially in a wildfire area the amount of labor and work that you guys must be putting in has got to be enormous. Right. We did have to hire a firm that brings in um, building permits or building um, techs and building um, inspectors. And so we have that ability. We hired a firm called uh, Four Leaf and they get employees, uh, temporary employees that we can use and, um, and expand to what the needs are. So that's worked out very well for us. Very interesting. It sort of is reminiscent of the rebuild of Chicago after the uh, fire, um, where it became obviously horrible, obviously tragic, obviously expensive. But within years later, it became an incredible opportunity. We had a similar situation here in southern Miami with Hurricane Andrew in 1992, where parts of Miami were destroyed and in the aftermath was beautiful uh, new buildings, new new air avenues and et cetera. So, so what I'd like to shift to, because this is a, an educational podcast for professionals, 
Lauren, what lessons did you learn? Did you, did you say either I'm glad we did or wish we had after the fire had subsided in preparation for it? We clearly don't have the wildfires like you do. We do have them. Uh, lightning, you know, record lightning strikes. Uh, most lightning strikes in any state in America are in Florida. Um, so we do get fires, but not the to the enormity that you guys are getting them. But we have hurricanes, we have tornadoes, we have horrible rainstorms and really, really bad flooding. What lessons can you share with city managers, county administrators in Florida that they can take away from your experience? Well, you know, the town of Paradise did a lot of things right. And, you know, we drilled, we prepared. And I guess that's the biggest thing is just prepare in advance, um, uh, know and plan for your typical or expected disasters, but then also take some time to think and brainstorm what you would do in an unprecedented scenario. Just make that the perfect storm, if you will, and just think about what you would do if you lost all communication, if you had no way to deal with your current scenario. And 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 that helps to to prepare. You what, is that, what does that look like? Is it a meetings where you where you brainstorm, put them on the board, and then walk through what you would do and give everybody a role? How, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So what we, we used to do in the town of Paradise, and I think all cities do this, is we would do not just real life drills, but tabletop exercises. And we would bring all the different agencies and uh, the, the school district, the hospitals, uh, the police and fire, also your other um, regional jurisdictions like your highway patrol and your sheriff's department and get bring everyone in to the table and just not only do a drill and a tabletop exercise, but then also talk about what if. What if, um, again, you lost communications or you had to evacuate a whole entire area how do you communicate with residents when you have no, your your normal channels are cut off? And just think about what you would do again afterwards. What happens afterwards? What is long-term recovery? Think about what those things are so, so people have a clue. Um, the town of Paradise, before the fire, uh, you know, very small town, very small budget. So we did not have the resources to uh, handle this disaster. Did, did, were there, was there a co you talked about other agencies, county, state, were they cooperative with you in helping you plan and prepare, whether it's tabletop exercises or actual drills? Sure. Before the fire, we did things uh, called um, a, a contraflow, where we would have all lanes going out of town. We did drill for that. But one of the things that we didn't do was go even further out with the state highway patrol. So now we are doing that going forward. We are um, getting more agencies to the table and having those discussions on what you do with traffic. Because again, when you um, evacuate 50,000 people and try to get them out of a town in in an area. We had 26,000 residents in town plus, um, you know, Megalia up above. When you try to evacuate that many people at once, 
it is, you know, beyond um, gridlock. Did you guys prepare specifically for fires? Oh, yes. And, and what, what does a field exercise look like? Just, just help me visualize what that looks like. Well, at one point, we actually um, closed off our, um, <clears throat> our downtown, if you will, and we did a, a contraflow through downtown during rush hour on purpose. So during our morning commute, which was our heaviest traffic time, we actually drilled a contraflow through town. What does that mean? What is a contraflow? A contraflow is when all the lanes are going in one direction. Okay. And that's pretty tricky to do, but uh, but we did it and we did drill for that. So we knew it would work. But again, that was not evacuating an entire town at once. I don't know. You were just trying to see if the, if the channels and everything would work. Could we get people in, get them this way? And will it flow? There wasn't some unforeseen, uh-oh. Sure. Uh, and so you, once you saw it work. By the way, I bet you were really popular that week um, when people were trying to commute. You were being told, oh, we're doing a drill. <laughs> right. Right. Well, actually, it was, you know, interesting and exciting. And we, you know, let people know in advance that we were going to be doing that. I think the worst thing is, is that it impacted the the local Starbucks. And so people couldn't get in and get their coffee. But other than that, it was uh, it was a great exercise. And it, it really gets some angry people. You interfere with their morning coffee. <laughs> right. The um, and so so you would prepare for that do the field exercise, and then come back and say, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? Sure. That had to be really hard to do when day in, day out, you got potholes to fix, you got a housing permit to give out, you know, to an inspection to be done, a traffic stop, uh, something else going on, a crime or whatever, to say, hey, guys, we need to do some prepare, preparing for something that hopefully will never happen. What did you do to get everybody motivated to do to 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 get together and do that? Well, it wasn't too hard to get people motivated uh, to to do the, the fire drills. We did fire drills all the time, whether tabletop or out in the field, and it wasn't too hard to do that. Again, I'm sure the state of Florida does that with, with hurricanes and tornadoes because you have those all the time. So people understand being prepared is important. But again, I think what, you know, where we failed is no one anticipated, no one could have ever anticipated that type of disaster. It was too big. That perfect storm is what what hit us. I mean, no one could have ever conceived it possible to evacuate the entire town at once. We evacuated zones. And uh, at one point, um, we did three zones and it was too much. So I knew when someone called for the entire town evacuation, it was going to be gridlock. It was going to be horrible. And then again, you're right in the middle of a fire. So you're not just sitting in traffic in gridlock. You have flames that you're driving through uh, and you don't know when a tree is. How did you communicate to each zone that, hey, it's your turn and you, the rest of you sit tight? Well, we would. That's a very good question. We could do that through our uh, public works and through the uh, police department. You know, the law enforcement agency actually carries out the evacuations. 
and our public works sets up those evacuation zones. But during the campfire, um, the uh, sheriff had called, or, or excuse me, uh, Cal Fire had called to um, evacuate all the zones. And so we just had to respond to that. We just had to do it. Someone called to say, hey, evacuate the whole entire town, which again, never, ever occurred. And we would never, ever anticipate that that would or should happen because it would create gridlock. Yeah. And I would imagine if I'm in zone three and you're telling me zone two is, you know, I got to wait a couple of hours, Mm -hmm. uh, but yet there's a fire raging, you know, right over the hill. I'm like, the hell with you. I'm getting the hell out of here. Did you have a lot of that? Yeah. And some people would do that and, and that would be, you know, fine. Well, you know, we, by the way, we have the opposite. We have people who don't want to leave, but I think something about water coming out of the sky, which happens with some regularity and fire coming across my lawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to get the hell out of there when there's fire, even though we have people that stay. It's, it's almost, it's sad, but it's almost comical. The people who just refuse to evacuate uh, during a hurricane. Right. So afterwards, um, what did you do? I think maybe this may be a stupid question, and I'm and I'm willing for you to say, Steve, that that doesn't make any sense. But the preparation you did in advance, how did that help you with recovery? The preparation is critical to being successful during any disaster. People knew uh, people in the EOC. We knew what to do. You know before, during, and after, you know, immediately following a disaster. And that's what people did. I mean, first responders, again, I have to say, they really know what they're doing. EOC workers, regular city employees, you know, an EOC is just a role we play during a disaster. That's not part of our regular jobs. So um, being prepared and knowing what your role is, is very, very important. The only thing I really know to do after that disaster was to um, to sign to, to declare a local emergency and to um, have an EOC you know have calls calls coming in and, and to respond to those those calls for help and so that's what I did declaring a local disaster so we could get disaster assistance was you know was critical and also to just keep government functioning. Because continuity of government is our is our main goal. And that's all oh, I. Yeah, you got to keep the lights coming back on as quickly as possible. What's interesting to me here is when I think of disaster preparation, and, and I'm thinking about a lot of the disasters we have in Florida, which have now a lot to do with water in one form or another. Preparation usually involves a lot of engineers, a lot of people making sure the water goes back to where it's supposed to be quicker. When it's in, it doesn't do as much damage. It's cordoned off, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're telling me is a lot of, almost all of your preparation was people and communications, Uh, moving people, making sure people knew what to do, not so much infrastructure preparation. Tell me a little bit more about that. Did you have infrastructure? I mean, are you now guys cutting roads in through the forest to prevent the fire from leaping? Is there anything like that that you're doing out there? We're doing should have done. we're doing a lot now to build the community back safer. Um, you know, f- fire breaks. The main thing I think that 
that I like that we're doing is putting not only the utilities underground because all of our utility poles were in the roads. They burned, they fell down, they were in the roads. They're blocking people. They can fall on people who are trying to leave. The other thing that we are doing is removing the hazardous trees and removing trees from roadways that can fall in the roadways. So clearing our main evacuation routes of hazards that can block traffic is the most important thing that we can do because that keeps the traffic flowing. Also, keeping things away from the roadsides that could actually burn and um, you know hurt people while they're trying to get out of town or evacuate. That is key. So we are doing that. Also installing an advanced warning system, maybe some type of siren that could uh, go off and alert people to a hazard. That way, if there was a fire in the middle of the night and people aren't on their phones or watching the news or seeing the smoke, they can, um, you know, they can actually get an advance warning because if the campfire happened, you know, a couple hours earlier, it would be a, a much different um, ending. In what way? There would be many more fatalities. Because you weren't, you it would if it had happened in the middle of the night, people would have been sleeping. You would not have been able to get exactly. people to respond. Exactly. But you woke up, you saw the clouds, and you're like, "Hey, what's something's going on here?" So you start immediately started to move. Right, and people as soon were, as and as soon as the electricity went out and cell towers started to burn, I mean, people were seeing the danger and leaving on their own, which is what they should be doing. And then you know, it's interesting you talk about the sirens because that's old school, right? But you still need that because you're right. Somebody may actually have their ringer on their phone off. And if they have an app, uh, they may for that one minute, <laughs> which is what it seems like anymore, uh, may not be looking at their phone to know, hey, get the hell out of here. There's a fire. Exactly. So having some type of advance warning or siren, even though it does seem old school, it is it is a, a, a key factor for high fire severity zones and areas that we have. They have them now in um, uh, San Francisco and other cities that experience tsunamis. Um, I'm sure they have um, tornado warnings um, back east where you are. So people uh, can be alerted to an impending and fast moving and unpredicted um, situation. So the day before the fire, when you drove to work, you noticed all the pretty trees. Now, when you drive down those same streets, I'm sure part of you is like, that tree's too close to the road. It could burn and fall and we can be in danger. Well, I that's interesting you bring that up because most of the trees have burned. Paradise was in, was in a forest, really. We're in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. So we were like in the pine trees. Um, and the, the entire... Um, Town of Paradise was in the footprint of the campfire. So every single property burned, not every uh, structure burned. We had about 5% of our, our um, structures did not burn, but every single property burned. For instance, on my property, the fire um, burned all the way up to the home, but did not burn my home. My landscape burned, trees burned. And so most of the pine trees will are now hazardous trees, they will be removed if they haven't already burned to the ground or already fallen or snapped off. But most of the trees will be removed and we built, we will be reseeding and replanting um, safe species and also in, um, in ways that will not uh, prevent 
people from evacuating and will also not be a problem as far as a fuel load to burn um, houses. Isn't that interesting how after a disaster, a disaster we knew existed, but it didn't, we now begin, like you said, the, the utilities underground, landscaping is different, tree trimming is different, moving things away from road edges. And it's ironic because unlike a a hurricane could hit an area, as we saw this year with Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, got hit three, four, five times in a row. Once a fire rages through a community like that, um, it's there's not the fuel out there to create the same level of burn. Certainly, it can happen again, maybe not for another 20 years. And of course, what you do in city government when you plan, you plan communities, you build for 50 years, you don't build for the next, you know, three years. So... It's interesting that now we're, we do this all the time and we do it in Florida now. Everything is hurricane safe. After Hurricane Andrew, we changed all of our building codes, but we knew what hurricanes were before Hurricane Andrew. But now we, we build them after the fact. And you wish, you wish you can get everybody to recognize the serious, and that's what the purpose of this podcast is. Build now, build safe now, build more resilient now, because it's going to happen to somebody, you know, somebody somewhere. Absolutely. And it is more clear now to see what is a better way, a more safe way? Nothing is 100% uh, foolproof, but you can build safer. You can uh, design better. And it just makes for, you know, better planning is is important. Yeah. And then we, you know, the conflict we have too, and I'm sure you do too, is a, Oh, I know you do, a lack of affordable housing, but you say, well, wait a second, if we're going to put utilities underground, if we're going to build a little bit wider road to make sure traffic flows, if we're going to make sure we do all these other safety features, that comes with a cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, 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 very difficult. And what we have proved is not doing that comes with the cost as well. You know, I, I was active with a group called Resiliency Florida for a while, and you're going to pay one way or another. The, the better way to pay is to look, you know, not over a two-year horizon, but a 22-year horizon and say, in the long run, using pre-stressed concrete, using better building techniques, better building design is going to save you money. It ain't going to save you money next year or even the year after, but in the long run, it will. And I guess that's that's part of the lesson you're telling me. Exactly. So uh, unexpectedly, when you were talking earlier, my, the light went on about the recovery period now is actually one of feast, right? We you know, went famine to feast, uh, rapid growth, rapid building, more jobs. How is, I mean, it's almost the inverse of a, of a disaster. How has that been managing that? Well, it has its own its own challenges, but it again, it's all very exciting to see um, all of the the building activity going on, and just to prepare for that. It's just like anything else; it creates uh, new situations that you have to um, handle and and deal with, and that is, you know, the crux of city manage management. It makes it it interesting. Um, I remember right after the fire group of planners came to me and said, oh, the, the whole town is burning. We can start over from scratch. And I said, well, we, we can't just start over from scratch. All of these properties are individually owned. So we have to 
um, keep that in mind. And the council was very adamant about, you know, helping people uh, to get back to town and rebuild if they wanted to rebuild. The town of Paradise was built very slowly over a hundred year period. And it was um, built individually by individual residents or homesteaders. It was not built by developers coming in and building large subdivisions. Oh, interesting. Each house was individually built and owned, and there is no um, subdivision that you drive through and you see all the houses the same here in, in Paradise. And that's how it's rebuilding. Individual homes being rebuilt by individual contractors. Lots are sold individually here, and it's it's interesting to see that go back exactly the way it was. And that was the actually part of the charm of paradise. You really need to to see it. You talk about um, Chicago and the big buildings being built back now after the fire, you know, individual buildings. That's our homes. Every home is unique and individual and, you know, built one at a time. Designed that's a, that's a really, really neat story. Is there anything that so you're, you've been talking to different groups. I know you, you're doing the Winter Institute with the FCCMA. Thank you. Uh, any message or thoughts that we did not cover that you're just aching to get out there? So, Steve, what is one more thing I want to talk about related to the lessons learned or, or things I'd like to share about my experience with Campfire? Well, you know, basically that before the fire, a city is, you know, our job is is infrastructure, right? And and public safety. That's what we provide, police, fire, infrastructure. Um, a full service city has sewer and, and uh, water. But we did not, we're not responsible for, um, you know, individual welfare and social services. So our budget before the fire was $13 million. That was our general fund budget. The county, Butte County, the county that we're in, they have a they had a hundred or six hundred million dollar budget. They do social services, but after a disaster like this, that gets really muddy and kind of combined. You you almost are expected to take care of everything for everybody. So uh, keeping those roles straight, having those lanes like this is our lane. This is what we need to do. This is what you know. FEMA comes in and does, and here's what the state can help us with. All of those, um, it's important to know what those rules are. And basically, the way it was laid out to me is if, you know, the, the town can't handle it, we go to the county. If the county can't handle it, they go up to the state. And if the state can't handle something, they go to the federal government. So a lot of our disaster recovery was uh, funded by FEMA um, carried out by the state. For instance, the state came in and, and um, they cleared all of our property of the ash and of uh, the hazardous debris and materials. And so that was great. They did that in nine months time. That was record time. Oh my gosh. And removing us. all that fuel and all that, those downed trees, which still have a lot of raw fuel left in them. Correct. So that we can rebuild and that is happening now. But the thing is, is that that what we want people to know is we're still here. We are not, 
you know, quote unquote, paradise lost. We are now a thriving boom town. Uh, the uh, entire town is a construction site. We have the money now to repair and overlay all of our streets and roads in town. That's 100 miles of public and 100 miles of private roads. Wow. And, and uh, we're working towards installing our, our first commercial uh, wastewater system in the uh, downtown and commercial areas. So we're going to have all new uh, infrastructure. We're going to be building back safer. We are um, actually, it's amazing how far we have come and how our vision is real. It's attainable and it's fully within our grasp. And, and that's what we're doing. It's a miracle because like I said, if that fire would have happened in the middle of the night, um, we would be having a different conversation right now. So well, I'm, um, I'm great. I'm grateful. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't far, far worse. Although it still stands, like we said, the most expensive natural disaster in that entire year. And I guess what I, I would say to city managers is, you know, have someone, you know, that that trusted, you know, group of people, small group of people that you can rely on and lean on in a situation like this. And it might not be your city manager next door because, you know, you're competing now for, for resources. It's a, it's a tough gig. And I remember thinking, um, uh, you know, why, why me? (laughs) Why did this happen? Why to us? And, and then, you know, I look at other situations and other cities and other disasters, and I just, you know, you just have to say this happened and, and how do we show the world that we can recover? How do we show the world how, how to do it so that other cities, other city managers, people can just keep going? Yeah, and that's, you know, I'm reading a book about resilient people and it, 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 the, those same features the ability to pick up and move on and say, not dwell, not cry over spilt milk, mm-hmm. but to get up and say, okay, what can we do? What, and how can we do it better? That's the sign of resiliency. It applies for people. And I think it applies for cities as well. Absolutely. It does, especially to city managers, because they're the leaders of that effort. They might not be out in front every day, but they are the leader of that recovery effort. No, the mayor gets to to be on the six o'clock news. The mayor gets to cut the ribbon, but it's the city managers and the county administrators that after that ribbon is cut to make sure all the permits are issued on time, make sure the certificates of occupancy go out properly and the electricity is done correctly. Uh, And there's no greater challenge in helping a city prepare for a disaster, um, muscle through a disaster, and then recover after. Um, So one of our last questions is, a positive story about uh, your town, but you really have done a great job of injecting optimism. Uh, and then one cool thing, I, I love what you said about paradise. We're not developers paradise. We're in indiv- a bunch of individual homes, individual looks and individual neighborhoods. Anything else cool about paradise you want to share with everybody? Well, I'll, I'll just tell you a cute little story about paradise. So before the fire, we had two signs in that two main entrances in town and they were big, just big uh, lumber, big, um, pine poles and they were signs look kind of they almost look like they were handmade and they've been there for so long that no one knew who owned them who put them up 
whose property they were on. I remember people coming to me and saying, we, we want to, you know, fix up these signs. How do, how do we do that? And I'd say, I don't, I don't know. They're, this one's not even in the town. That one's on private property. And, and it, it was just the, these kitschy little signs, really, that uh, no one knew how they got there, who owned them. And one said, um, you are now ascending into paradise. Again, kind of kitschy, but, mm-hmm. um, and the other one uh, said, um, may you find paradise to be all its name implies. And I can tell you right after the fire, that's what people wanted back. We have to put those signs back up because they burned obviously in the fire. They were made out of wood. Um, But that's the pride in paradise. That's what people do. That's the heart of paradise or any community. They want to build it back. These signs were basically, you know, ours, you know, as silly and corny as they were, there are signs that said, you know, welcome to paradise. And that's what people were proud of. And that's what people loved. So people love being I love paradise. That. I love that. It, it, you know, it, it's part of the American spirit. You know, our, our national anthem is based upon waking up in the morning and seeing that sign, our flag, as it were, uh, after the fire, after the bombing, still there, right? And so it's a nice story that the public wanted to see those signs first put back up. Um, it's, it speaks to good community spirit. Well, Lauren, I really enjoyed this and I hope our members do too. Thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate your service and it's a fantastic story and I'm glad you were there and, and I'm glad for the people of Paradise they had you there. Well, thanks for having me. I'm Steve Vancor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City County Management Association. Thank you for being with us.